My mother had many dreams that are now mine. In a recurring one, I am walking through a field carrying an infant side by side with Maggie. She wears a sundress and bonnet. We are standing in wheat. There's no wheat for three states in any direction, but that's what my mother dreams about. The baby gives a toothless smile and holds out his chubby hands as if the whole world is a rare and precious thing for him to hold. My wife glances at me, radiant with the autumn sun, her hair curling out from beneath the bonnet and struck by the sunlight in such a way that her features are suddenly blazing, as natural and perfect as the season itself. Sometimes I wake up crying, with my brothers leaning over my bed, staring and weeping with me. This is the Pink Smoke Podcast with your host, John Cribbs and Chris Funderberg. It's a new season of book-related episodes where we cover a book that we both read and have thoughts and comments about, but we're doing something for the first time here. Uh, because for anyone who's listened to our book episodes, we usually uh, do a pairing. We do an aperitif and a dessert pairing. It could be any kind of artwork, a movie, a book, anything that we come up with that relates to the book we're talking to, something to appreciate before and after reading it. And this is the first time that we're actually taking a recommendation from a guest to do the pairing. We're going to be talking about a book that was paired uh, by Stephanie Crawford, our guest on the episode All Heads Turn as the Hunt Goes By by John Ferris. And the book that she had paired that with is The Choir, a Choir of Ill Children by Thomas Piccarilli. And the way she made it sound was just really intriguing to both of us. We both kind of just wanted to read it. And so we did. And then we decided, hey, let's do an episode about it. That's pretty much how it went. Right, Chris? Uh, yeah, that's that's the way I see it. <laughs> and that's it's funny the- because, I mean, she didn't go too much into it. She really just kind of read the back of the book, but it had kind of an automatically intriguing premise before even kind of knowing what we were getting into. And about halfway through this book, I got to say, I was like, wow, I really didn't know the depths that I was going to be sinking into with this particular book. But I'll just say, I'm really glad that she recommended it. I'm glad that we read it. Yes. Um, Here's a funny story. This book, uh, we have a family house in Delaware. My parents live in Florida. In the summertime, we spend a lot of time in this family house in Delaware. Because I was going to be in Delaware when we were reading this, I had the book delivered to that house when I ordered it. I had the, the paperback delivered to it. It arrived before I got there. And my mom opened it and read like the first few chapters of this book for oh some reason. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, she was just picked it up and was like, I wonder what this is and started reading it. My mom is a nonfiction author who's into true crime and creepy weird stuff. It's not necessarily um, outlandish that she read some of it the way as if your mom read some of it, John, I think your mom's a very regular suburban woman. My mom is also a regular suburban woman though. So it's like 75% bizarre. And I was like, Oh, what'd you think? She goes, that's a very creepy book. That was her. That was her review. It was very creepy. Put put it on the blur. Put it on the cover. <laughs> instead of Thunderberg. In, instead of the blurb that you see over and over about this book, which is for some reason, everybody says it'll remind you of Flannery O'Connor, which I've got to say, as a big Flannery O'Connor fan, absolutely not. No, this will not <laughs> remind you. A Flannery O'Connor in any way, shape, or form. Unless your only comparison is takes place in the South. Okay. <laughs> yes. It does remind me then of Flannery O'Connor's stories, most of which take place in the South. Uh, yeah. It's sort of, and like have a measure of 
a grotesqueness to them. But this book, this book, it's got to be said, is genuinely gross and unpleasant. Um, it's going to sound uh, uh, negative in some way. Look, this book is, <laughs> we should talk a little, we've got to do our aperitif pairings. We got to talk about what the book is and then we can get into it. But this book is really interesting. The theme for today to sort of think about as we go into it is, let me say this phrase, I want to talk about the gentrification of exploitation genres, right? That's happened in the past, you know, 20, 25 years. And this book is a very good resistance to the gentrification of exploitation genres, right? Of yeah, horror, yeah. of horror, black exploitation, uh, crime films, all of the things, pornography, all of those genres have been become very gentrified. And this book is very much not that, which is what I appreciated about it. Absolutely. It was a really smart pairing with the John Ferris book that we did, because it really is like, if you wanted to do something that John Ferris would do, uh, but, you know, with a kind of 2003 mindset, this is what you'd want to see. You know, this isn't like some kind of a, you know, panache or anything like that. It's not, you know, it's it's something that's very of its time, but it's definitely has those elements of exploitation that you love in those old 70s. It's, it's an extremely poor taste in an unself-conscious way. Yeah. Although it's a very self-conscious book. <laughs> um, let's do our, let's do our pairings. I've got to say that I really, you're if, if, uh, responding to your intro. This is great. I liked reading uh, Stephanie's recommendation. I like going into a recommendation completely blind and reading it. It was really fun. It makes me feel like we should go through more recommendations when we've had guests and just do those for future episodes, that this yeah, was very productive. Fantastic sounding recommendations from lots of people. So yeah. I'm surprised we haven't done this until now. Because this was 0% on my radar. This was not a book I had ever heard of in my entire life. No, uh, Piccarelli's an established author, but I had never heard of him. And, yeah. the and speaking of the book cover, it's the one, at least for my edition, is so generic and completely, even with, that's the one, even with the great title, it's just like, why the fuck would I want to read this? This looks like, you know, an Alex Cross adventure or some shit that I would never touch with a 10 foot clown pool. <laughs> Yeah, we have the same cover, I think. And it's just like a creepy house in the woods, but very generic, like creepy. Right, is it even creepy? It's just kind of like a house and that's it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, it's wonderfully whacked, disorienting, a fully creepy book. Now, Anne Funderburg didn't say that. Dean Koontz did, just for the record. <laughs> Dean Koontz is a smart reader. So, John, let's do with every uh, one of our novels, we do an aperitif and a dessert pairing, something to prime your appetite, to whet your appetite for the book in question, and then something to uh, top it off and take it out afterwards. So, John, uh, what I'll do my aperitif pairing first. Is that okay? And I'll let you do second. Sure. Uh, I picked a, um, a another Southern Gothic type psychic uh unpleasant uh sexual violence and murder story which is the gift by sam raimi i considered the gift great that's great yeah um and i say by it's directed by sam raimi starring kate blanchett and keanu reeves and giovanni rabisi um but more importantly it was written by billy bob thornton and his writing partner tom epperson who obviously wrote uh the great one false move 
as well. Uh, at, at some point in time, I don't know what their reputation is now, but that, that pairing of names, if you're a cinephile, should excite you. They're really fantastic writers, and the main character, Kate Blanchett, plays a, uh, a psychic in a backwoods town who becomes an embroiled in the various uh, domestic problems of the of the various gross rednecks around her um which is you know pretty similar description to choir of ill children but it was uh, kate kate blanchett's character was apparently based on billy bob thornton's mom that she apparently was a psychic who had a gift who got embroiled in these sort of um intense situations uh and so i think that's really fascinating i i feel um definitely more Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epperson than I do Sam Raimi, but it's, it's actually Kate Blanchett's movie. You feel Kate Blanchett most of all, more than, than of any of the other, um, any of the other creative voices in it. I would say uh, that it's based on Billy Bob Thornton's mom. That actually reminds me, maybe I'll cut this. Did I tell you I went on a date with this woman who was a pet psychic? Did I tell you about this? She hadn't said what her job was. We, we met uh, online and we went out on a date and she's really cool. She's actually a really awesome person, incredibly big cinephile, like, like our level cinephile. And, uh, and, I, and I asked what she did for a living and she was like, I'm a pet psychic. And she's like, yeah, I know it's weird. I, and I didn't realize that I had the gift until I was in like my late 20s. It's very strange. I didn't believe in any of that stuff, but I'm like a, a famous pet psychic. I was like interviewed for Amy Schumer's TV show, if you've ever seen that. I was on there talking about being a pet psychic. And, uh, and her dad was one of the original writers. And uh, I don't know if he was a, an editor or had a stake in it, but for Screw Magazine, Al Goldstein's her go godfather. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. It was, uh, yeah, she was awesome. She's actually awesome. But I did have this, like, um, I really, truly don't believe in pet psychics. So I'm not sure this is going, like, I don't believe you're communicating with pets psychically. That feels like we can't get over this. Do you um, believe there in were, pet whispers? <laughs> that you can sort of uh, commune with animals in some yeah. way, non-verbally on their own level? Yes. If, sure, but I don't think that's psychic phenomenon. Do you, John? John, do you believe in it's pet some psychics? It's kind of crazy black magic that I don't understand for sure. I'm always really? that kind of stuff. But no, is it psychic? Of course not. I don't believe it's. <laughs> Good. I was about to say stuff or anything like that, but it's, I, it was about to shock me. And that's actually, I probably would have gone out with her more, but I had other things going on in my life that, that prevented me from, from pursuing a relationship at that moment. But, uh, but I don't know, maybe I should call Tom Epperson up and write a script about this lady. It sounds at least as interesting as Billy Bob's mom. I actually love Billy Bob Thornton. I don't know what his uh, place in pop cultural artistic world so like i don't know what his status is anymore but i think he's fucking phenomenal he's somebody i really really he like kind of disappear after being pretty ubiquitous for a while there he I don't know seemed, where he ended up he seemed to like squander what was wanted of him like he seemed antagonistic to playing the role that he wanted uh, that that like the art world wanted him to play. He seemed hostile to it in some way. Um, but just to get back on the gift, the gift is obviously most famous for now. For what? 
Kate Holmes nude scene. Exactly. It's the movie that uh, that Rosenberg and Goldstein are watching in Harold and Kumar go to White Castle that they that gets all of their commentary that Katie Holmes's boobs are in it is I think is what the gift is most well known for at this point although it's it's a very enjoyable movie it's you know um I don't want to overstate how good it is but it does have like uh an an unselfconscious sleaziness and rawness to it that uh, I think is, is will get you in the mindset for Choir of Ill Children. Although Sam Raimi is fundamentally too likable and good-natured to set foot in real Choir of Ill Children territory, but it points you in the right direction. Yeah, I had a little mini Sam Raimi rewatch prior to the Doctor Strange movie coming out, and I rewatched The Gift for the first time in years. It's a movie that I feel is more that I admire more than I actually like. I think that the biggest problem with it actually is the script. I think that, you know, it, it just falls into the same kind of pit that any sort of murder mystery does where it's like, I don't care about the mystery, but I like the atmosphere of this film. And I really like Kate Blanchett. And I definitely want to like spend time in the world of this film more than like, I actually care about what happens in the movie itself. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, uh, Giovanna Ribisi plays a character that you could see fitting perfectly into this book, you know? Yes. Well, that's who I think of, the the Blue Diamond. And I would say it's a weird movie where I would say the the performances are pretty uniformly uh, over the top or bad. You know, I I would say that everybody, Ribisi, Reeves, Holmes, Greg Kinnear, Hilary Swank, they all do a a pretty bad job in it, too. It's a a weirdly, um, but in a way that I like, like they're sort of all embracing the Southern Gothicness of it in some way, in a way that's, again, you know, just to talk about, there's something I like about everybody going for it to erratic results but you don't watch it and you go, nailed it. It's not a movie that you watch yeah. and you're like, no, man, like an, they nailed it. There's like an overlong court scene in the middle, right smack in the middle of the movie where Gary Cole isn't nearly as sleazy as he should be, you know? <laughs> um, which is hard because that's one of Gary Cole's specialties. That's, you, you, why do you cast Gary Cole if he's not going to just <laughs> ooze sleaze on the screen? Of course. I know. You got to get Mr. Fatal Vision in there in a courtroom scene. Right. Are you kidding me? He's <laughs> exactly. a, It's a signifier that this guy is just an oily snake oil salesman used up all the smarm on a simple plan i guess <laughs> john what's your pairing uh so i also picked a, a film that is the gift i also picked the gift no Sorry. i was thinking about it. I, I literally literally thought maybe the gift would be a good pick but uh and it is but what i ended up picking <laughs> is an- another movie that uh is uh gothic unsettling se- sexual violence <laughs> ticks a lot of the same boxes although uh, really more it's just of a, a tone kind of similarity, I would say, rather than sort of the events of the book. And it's um, The Reflecting Skin, Philip Ridley. Oh, yeah. Which, of course, is a movie that you see all these kind of really unsettling, disturbing things through the mind of the, or through the eyes of this child, you know, and it's sort of a warped coming of age film set in the 50s where this young boy is um, kind of, processing all the things that are going on around him through like childlike eyes so he's thinking like his neighbor uh who is this in in you know truth of this sad widow lady is uh is like a vampire you know and the yeah. brother who is suffering from like radiation poisoning from working on like the bombs in world war ii is is having his life 
<clears throat> slowly drained away by this woman. And there's just a lot of disturbing kind of stuff like that in it, but it also feels very beautiful. Like it's a very yeah. beautifully made film that you enjoy spending time in, even though you're very creeped out. Throughout it's the whole a movie thing. that gets called Lynchian a lot. And I think mm -hmm. it's one of the rare cases where it's actually an accurate description. It mm -hmm. has it has a wild at heart firewalk with me feel to it. It does. It has like, you know, an affection for, you know, 50s culture and hillbillies and uh but at the same time the supernatural and the surreal in a way that i think that lynch definitely you know would sign off on and very gorgeously composed mm -hmm. shots of people doing deeply bizarre stuff you know mm -hmm. absolutely but so when i read piccarilli i thought you know well even though i am feel like i'm taking a shower reading this i at the same time i admired you know like a like a really kind of beautiful perspective through this character and like the reflecting skin, you know, you're seeing things through this kid's eyes, kind of understanding that like what you're seeing is maybe not exactly real <laughs> or maybe, you know, yeah. is, is warped in some strange way. And, you know, that's kind of like my main takeaway from the book is I really admire how it slips in and out of dreams and flashbacks and maybe reality. And sometimes we don't even know exactly what they are, you know, and that's something that I think Philip really captures really well in this film and Picker really does in this book. Yes, I think that's a great pairing. So shall we dig into the book? I think that's a I think that's a great pairing. I think that's a really interesting pairing. I hadn't thought of the book in that way, but if you were going to film this book, I think that's the only way you could film it and like get away with making it. I think I think that um that it's so unpleasant that if that if you didn't make it gorgeous and beautiful in some way, it, I, I just don't think they'd let you make a movie of it. Probably, I just don't think I don't think it would happen. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. And the book is also what I would say about the book's style is you read that paragraph and that paragraph sounded good. I remember reading that paragraph when I was reading it and thinking, ugh, you know, like it's an incredibly relentlessly overwritten book. Uh, I've talked about, you know, in the Pet Cemetery episode, Stephen King will occasionally have one overwritten paragraph, and it's extremely terrible because he's tenured. He's not a good, what he's good at is not the mechanics of writing beautiful prose, right? Whatever his virtues are, he's not good at that. This book is like, what if you made up the entire book out of those paragraphs, right? <laughs> like, what if you built an entire book out of overly florid Stephen King sort of unabashed, tenured, awkward, flowery overwriting, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that as we get into it, I actually like, it sounds like I'm being critical of it, but it helps to create that, is this reality or unreality? Is this a dream or not a dream tone that you're talking about? It really distances you heavily from the reality of what's happening. It's written the first person and it pushes you away from tactile, physical reality of the world so much that you're very uncertain about what's happening. I don't know what his other books are like, but if you told me this is the only one written this way and it's a specific voice developed for this character in this plot, I would absolutely believe it. It yeah. doesn't read like this is definitely this author's style. It reads like this book is trying to do a few things and this is a perfect style for it although at the same time it is just like it it is just completely overwritten you know 
and beneath the sound of the storm of souls fluttering in my basal ganglia, a laughter like the muted song of a choir of ill children. Like that's, this whole book is fucking written like that. It's true. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's a very short book and it is, I won't say a slog, but it like it, there is effort to reading it because of that kind of overriding <laughs> style. But I will also say, considering it's, you know, it's first person, that it's present tense. I mean, it's a very risky, you know, kind of way of writing that he goes into this book. And I think he gets away with it. I think that, like you said, it kind of sets you off balance in a really interesting way where he even has repetitions of uh, descriptions and ends yeah. chapters similarly. So you're like, wait a minute, what the fuck? I read this. This is how he ended the chapter like three chapters ago. Yeah. But I think it's deliberate. You know, I think it's like a way of like really making you think is wait, is he, is he going into a new thing? Are we kind of retracing uh, the steps of the narrative from a few chapters ago again? Are we kind of like trying to rethink, you know, the way something happened? I think that, you know, there's just an interesting way that he kind of keeps you off balance throughout the whole book. Yeah. And even that section I just read right there, I pulled it open to a, to a random section that I have, that I, knew was there that phrase choir of ill children you might think oh there's where he uses the title he uses the phrase a choir of ill children to describe things like five times yeah you know it's not just that one thing that he describes over and over as a choir of ill children he keeps using the phrase that repetition that you're talking about he keeps going back to it in a in a way where he uses it in the book and you're like ah choir of ill children this is kind of whack and then he uses it again and you're like huh that's kind of Hey, that's kind of weird. And he uses it again. You're like, that's definitely whack. And he uses it again. You're like, I am with it. I am completely with what he's doing here. And then the last time he uses it, you're like, ah, you got me. I, you defeated me as a reader. And my critical faculties have been pulled apart and mushed back together by you, which is really how I feel uh, about this book. Let's, let's get into the story of it, John. Uh, this is what Joe Bob Briggs would call a classic no plot to get in the way of the story. There isn't. In <laughs> fact, I can, I, can, I can basically sum up the plot with three questions. Yes. Who, who's kicking the dogs? Yes. Who is this mystery girl who's shown up in town? Yes. And will the granny witches steal Thomas's vinegar? Those are pretty much <laughs> the three things well, that, that's... Are, that, that go from, you know, have a plot line from beginning to end, even though at least two of them at the end, it's like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Well, that's the thing is I want to do the same thing. And I wrote more questions than that. I have those. I have, who's the dog kicker in size 12 boots? Who is the car or uh, who is the geek at the coming carnival? Who is Eva found on the flat rock? Um, I didn't phrase all of them as questions. Now I'm looking at it. Then there's the uh, a story about a one-legged pedophile serial killer out for revenge. Will Sarah and and uh, what's the other guy's name? I didn't write it down. Will Fred. Sarah, the Jew, Will Sarah and the Jewish American princess and Frank finish their doc about conjoined triplets. What that, happened? That that, that plot uh, was out <laughs> much earlier than I expected. Actually, those characters kind of leave. What happened? What happened to Thomas's mother? Who killed Thomas's grandmother with a reaping hook and left her on the roof of the church? Who grave gave Lucretia Martine her fatal abortion? Fatal abortion. I'm getting <laughs> penetrated by the her fatal abortion. I see where, abortion. Where did drabs go? Where did the conjoined triplets go? Each of these are all, they all get like multiple chapters where the book pretends like 
this is the main story that we've been talking about this whole time, you know, and it is, and I didn't even get to the granny witches. The granny witches are the ones who are worrying about the coming carnival and they need his vinegar, AKA his ejaculate to prevent the soul of storms. I think it's extremely unclear to me when you get to the end, there's a bunch of plots that fizzle what the, what the conjure women, the witch grannies are trying to prevent. It's extremely yeah. unclear. That I would say is the biggest through line of the book is these this group of women trying to create potions to stop a coming problem. And the problem never seems to come. It's you're it's purported to be the carnival with the geek at the carnival. And then when he gets to the carnival, um, it's quite shocking what's there, but it's not. It doesn't like, why were they trying to stop that? What right. does this have to do with anything? I don't know the chronology of the uh, George R. R. Martin books, right? The Game of Thrones <laughs> books. But when the phrases, the carnival is coming and the ham is in the house, keep recurring in this book. I couldn't help feeling like, what is this? Like winter is coming. Like he's making like fun of <laughs> things not paying off specifically, like, you know, in a big mythology. But all these George, George R. R. Martin seems like the kind of guy who definitely said at some point excitedly the ham is in the house definitely <laughs> he definitely got excited ex- for a ham in the house he, went, sure. he got so excited to fish the rum ham out of the ocean i guarantee you george <laughs> R. Martin. oh my god uh yeah so it's got all these threads and they're all connected to this guy thomas right and this is set in kingdom come and i really Potts want to county i which... really want to emphasize none of those threads takes precedence right none right. of them do i we just went through a bunch of different things you keep waiting for the story to come along the plot but there's no plot to get in the way of the story so sorry john john no, go on i just have to emphasize how true. how strange this book is well even the thing that kind of sets everything off that you know is described in the opening paragraphs of the book that you think is going to be a huge deal which is Thomas living in this mansion with his three brothers who are triplets conjoined at the frontal lobe, sharing one massive 10 pound brain, you know, and you're thinking like, this is going to be a story about him and his brothers, because that's what it sets up at the beginning, that that's going to be the big arc. And the brothers, while they are, you know, through, you know, important throughout the book, never get their own plot. I mean, they never have like anything happening with them specifically. It's more of a, you know, atmospheric sort of thing that they're just around all the time yeah they're like a character that doesn't matter it's not explained one of the questions is why did the conjoined triplets disappear into the woods and it doesn't get answered right it it doesn't get answered and and they're described as they're described so creepy as they all face each other with their and move with their arms around each other like russian dancers he described it looking as but all three of them breathing each other's stale breath you know, and it is like very, very creepy, but you're right. Like, you're like, wow, this is going to be the plot. It's like an old dark house movie. Maybe it's like basket case, a brother and his, and his Mm -hmm. deformed brother, uh, you know, up on the, uh, upstairs and then they don't even matter. And and these two amateur filmmakers, Fred and Sarah hanging out with them. Uh, one of the brothers falling in love with Sarah. You think that all of this is going to be like the main thrust of the narrative. And then it really kind of gets ditched pretty early on. And when I say poor taste, their plot is that Sarah and Fred are coked out jackasses who decide to stop making their documentary about this 
conjoined triplets and instead to start fucking them and making a gangbang porno with them when they're in a coke-fueled, desperate uh, rage at a certain point. Uh, and it's and it's a movie that lingers on descriptions of like belly button rings and muff sizes and boob sizes and sweat on scrotums type of type of book. It does, it's it's really gross. It's all about talking about like vinegar and ejaculation and coming down people's throats. There's a lot of that. And she also <laughs> mentioned that this guy, Fred, you know, is also inspired. He wants uh, this guy Drabs Bibbler to star in the porno, who is Thomas's friend, who is the black son of uh, the reverend, the local reverend, who, you know, has these moments of um, these seizures where he kind of like goes into fits and starts. He speaks in tongues. Funk speaking in tongues and, you know, uh, and tears off his clothes whenever he does and runs around naked, you know, uh, speaking in tongues. So this guy has seen him run around naked and was like, hey, that's going to be the start of my porno movie. Yeah. It's like, oh, what this God, ah, this couldn't be, this guy couldn't be sleazier. Like T- Ty West, take a look at this guy. This is the guy who should have started X, this fucking <laughs> sleazeball. Well, it's also funny because the Drabs Bibbler thing, like the Granny Witches, it's like Drabs has some kind of, uh, okay, Jesus Christ. Drabs' story, when they were nine years old, Drabs married Thomas, our hero, the rich guy who is the son of great grandson of a factory owner founded kingdom comes most important factory. They're like rich guys, Thomas and his triplets brothers. They're rich guys living in this huge house. They have a lot of power in this small County. Drabs Bibbler married Thomas to his, his childhood girl, Maggie, when they were nine years old and it drove Drabs insane. And uh, they haven't been able to get along ever since Maggie has disappeared somewhere. We don't really know what's going on with Maggie. Uh, But Drabs looks over in some religious psychic way, Thomas, for the whole book. And it's implied that he's offering some kind of spiritual psychic protection for Thomas the whole book. And again, when you get to the end, it's like, what was Drabs doing? I don't know what (laughs) Drabs was doing at all. We also just right at the top have to talk about the names in this book. Sap Duppy. Tab Ferris, Sody Coots, Velma Coots, Trabs Bibbler, Hurt Plumber, Gussie Hawker, Herbie Johnstone. <laughs> exactly. Lottie it, May. Exactly. Lucretia Mertine. Lucretia Mertine. And how about the best one? Nick Steele, my boy, Nick Steele. Nick Steele, the PI. I do love the Nick Steele subplot because that would normally be the main character in a book yes, like this. I loved and, it 100%. It was like a Cornell Woolrich story was happening off page or like <laughs> Hell Hath No Fury was happening off page in this book, you know? Exactly. Exactly. It was like it was like the guy that Clive Barker would make the main character in his story. You just our main character would walk into every now and then be like, ah, oh, yeah, plagued by your demons there, I see, right? And your your horrible sexual desires. Well, I'm just stopping by. How's the case going? You know. And meanwhile, <laughs> yeah. he's like smashing a bar to pieces. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, but Thomas, names... almost like telling us, like you know, this ain't gonna go well for this guy. Am I right? We know what this kind of character's all about. <laughs> the dead wife, <laughs> seduced by the uh, the school marm. You know, the Lavidius school marm, and uh, this. <laughs> very creepy girl with the all day sucker running around. Yes. They find what they, somebody describes as an eight year old laying on the flat rock out in the woods. And the flat rock is this 
a big flat stone with sacrificial grooves in it for oils and blood to be mixed together. And it's been there forever. And Thomas's father, who was destroyed by the backwards magic of country life, was torn apart by it, felt like the, uh, the flat rock should be put in a museum somewhere. It belongs in a museum, but every other kid's afraid to touch it. And there the flat rock remained, even though there were sometimes suggestions that the flat rock should be shattered asunder forever. But it's for witchy, no goodness, animal and human sacrifices out in the woods. And they find this woman, uh, this woman, hey, spoilers, they find this person they believe to be an eight-year-old girl laying on the flat rock. But sort of the, the more people glance at her, they're like, oh, maybe she's 12. Oh, she might be as old as 14, but she dresses in like a little schoolgirl outfit with bobby socks and black plastic shoes and carries an all day sucker with her everywhere. And they each time he says, even as like weeks are going by, that it's the same sucker. And it's like, I do not want anyone holding a sucker that has been out on the flat rock in the woods. It is disgusting. It's covered in more mosquitoes than the little boy that, you know, he found murdered by the by the one legged pedophile. Yeah, I do appreciate the description of the lollipop hypnotism, though. Don't look into the swirl of that all-day <laughs> sucker or you'll be lost in it. There's just a lot of like great kind of poetic uh, descriptions of the most awful things in this book. Yeah, I think we should go full spoilers. I think if, sure. if you haven't read it, and uh, we always do spoilers, if you haven't read it and you're all intrigued and you don't want it spoiled go read it right now. But the resolution, and they call her Eva, the local school teacher takes her under the wing, takes her into the house. This is the lascivious school teacher that we've mentioned before, the one who dresses in ill-fitting clothes. But when you take them out, she's got big boobies, according to Thomas. And everybody wants to fuck Thomas in this book for some reason. Every woman he meets is, is out to fuck him. So as soon they, as the school- Because that's one of the things I was like, yeah. how many of these women is he actually- hooking up with especially since we have this mysterious woman showing up uh giving him a blowjob and like writing on his leg as she's doing it you know the, throughout the it's go, a very the, ominous kind of uh oral sex he's getting from this the, the ghost blowjob you mean the, yes, the, the ghost, ghost blowjob from ghostbusters <laughs> exactly exactly this book is somehow less tasteful than the ghost blowjob scene from ghostbusters <laughs> um <laughs> But so Eva, the girl they find Holy on the Saul rock. Thomas being played by Dan Aykroyd, by the way. <laughs> they name her. I saw Thomas Jane because his name was Thomas. Oh, that's good. They, they, uh, they name her Eva from the Flat Rock and Lily, the school teacher, takes her in. And she comes by uh, Thomas at, at the factory and is like, we need to figure out what to do with Eva. And Thomas is like to his uh, foreman, like, take Eva on the tour of the factory, close the door and fucks Lily because that's the kind of book it is. They immediately fuck. And, uh, and it, so he hires this private detective from L.A., Nick Steele, our boy Nick Steele, very classic fedora wedding guy, fedora wearing guy. His wife is dead. He's he's barely managed to stay out of the bottom of a bottle. He's found discipline in martial arts, and he begins to research Eva's story. And it turns out she's a fake. She's a fake child prostitute from L.A. 
little orphan that's twist been, for you there, everybody. I know. She's pretending to be a little kid. And her being found on the flat rock is part of a larger plan to seduce Thomas and worm her way into it. But she's got plenty of takers in the meantime in town. And sort of before we hear the resolution, it's been everybody in town knows that she's actually an adult pretending to be a little kid. And she's becoming a well-used prostitute in this little town. And what? And so that's an interesting resolution to that story. What happens to Nick and Lily and Eva? Well, that's the thing is like, we don't know largely because so much of it is off page. And, and every time he meets up with uh, Thomas, Thomas just throws whatever the new mystery is at Nick. He's like, Hey, we had this woman murdered. Why don't you look into that? Look into who's kicking these dogs. Like he just like throws any single mystery he has at this guy. Like, well, just throw it on your load. And, yeah. and, he, and he has no confidence at all that Nick is actually going to solve any of these crimes. But do you not remember their final scene together? Oh, how could I forget? Their final this scene? is what I'm saying. I want to build up to, I've just told this like it's a regular detective story, but what is the resolution of the Nick, Lily and Eva story? I have to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, he's murdered both of them and revealed their s and dungeon bedroom where they've all been fucking each other and he lost his mind he's he's beaten lily so badly her face is missing and he's done unspeakably horrible things to eva who he believes to be a child for some reason because he has this breakdown about like i'm supposed to protect children i'm the pi who finds kids and if i was attracted to her oh that's what he says he's like if i was attracted to her before i knew the truth thinking i start 12 13 year old kid what am i i'm not any good so then and our boy Nick Steele kills himself. And uh, what kind of impact before, does that on Thomas killing no. himself? It's revealed the all day sucker. He's holding the all day sucker when uh, Thomas yeah. comes in and he's got the gun in his lap. And then even when he comes back the old, and he's dropped the all day sucker on the floor, he's like tapping it with his foot and says, because he wants this connection <laughs> with yeah. this prop that this girl, this, this young woman has had. And it's just, it's funny because unseemly gross stuff happens throughout the entire book. This is really the one super violent thing that we see yeah. in the book. And uh, it's weird how much more upsetting it is since we, you kind of figure like you're expecting something like this to happen throughout. And there've been like little segments like the scene with the, um, the dead kid in the swamp and things like that, where they're certainly creepy, but, you know, like coming upon this violence from like, you know, something that was very much just a subplot, like way in the back of this story that was almost more comedic than anything makes it even more disturbing well things keep coming along and you think oh, okay even on the flat rack now the plot's going to begin right it keeps right. coming along like that the book keeps coming along until stuff introduced very late in the book uh, suddenly takes center stage you know the whole one-legged pedophile serial killer thing yeah. where he gets out of prison and comes to hunt down thomas that that becomes center stage like this is what we've been all building up to but that plot of him finding the dead boy's body out in the swamp so tell that plot we need to explain it's yeah it's nuts thomas has this memory of when he was a child that he went out into when the he was bottoms, eight years old i believe right? went out to the bottoms into the swamp yeah and he comes upon the body of this this boy uh in the swamp who's been murdered and across the like across the swamp he sees like a, a, a gator that's like right it's like in its death rights right it's like rolling around uh it's been it's been it's received a mortal blow and then there's this guy this guy who's had his leg chomped off by the gator being like 
oh, thank God you came along. That's my son. The gator got him. And then he bit off my leg. And I need you to like take your belt off as like a tourniquet and like, you know, stop the bleeding of my leg and save my life. And Thomas isn't, you know, fooled one bit. He sees that, you know, this guy murdered this kid. And then the gator, you know, came into the, into the play. So he leaves him there. He puts his belt on the body of the child and just walks away. And that's, and, and, oh, no, he doesn't he walk away. He doesn't he walk away. He passes out. passes out. And when he comes to, both bodies are gone. There's, there's no sign that any of this actually happened. That's like the one part of the book. When I read it, I thought, oh, this, this maybe didn't happen. This is something yeah. that he's just in his mind. And it's like, of all the things that have been like thrown out there, it's like, maybe this is a hallucination. Maybe this ghost doesn't exist. It just seemed like, oh, this is just some weird thing that he thought up in his head. But it becomes, it all comes back. It all well, becomes this is, relevant. There's two things about this. This is a short book and it's, it's small pages, large type, spaced words. It gets up to 225 pages. That story that John just told you is chapter five, page 67, right? So well after like the plot machination should be happening and it's told like an afterthought, like this is something that happened to me. And then late in the book, so it's introduced, you know, well over, you know, uh, a quarter into it, right? And then at the end of the book, it suddenly becomes the main plot when this serial killer gets out of prison and he's become like karate guy on his, on his fucking crutches. That's the thing. <laughs> Thomas is able to beat up everybody in this book. He fucks every woman and he beats up everybody incredibly easily. He's always doing that Steven Seagal Aikido wrist snapping, bending it back, throwing people to the ground kind of thing. He's always taking people's weapons and using against them, snatching knives and things out of their hands and cutting them with them. <laughs> breaking arms, uh, that kind of thing. But and then be afraid of Yes, but pedophile cool on crutches, who's got to be elderly, he's got to be middle-aged or older because he's been in jail for any years for 20 years on crutches is Im immobily tough. They're fighting in a furious rainstorm, and Thomas just gets his ass kicked by crutches guy. It's one of the <laughs> weirder weirder things who's out for revenge and then you feel like oh wow this is really heating up and then how does that subplot end what ends the pedophile serial killer story the only john way it possibly could he gets hit by fucking lightning <laughs> in the middle of this fight <laughs> the fight ends by him getting hit by lightning and char grilled and our hero has all the hair burned off of him He's, he's fucked up by it as well. And that's a funny thing to think about is like, oh, I guess I got to picture him for the second half of this book looking like Kevin Bacon in Death Sentence, you know? Like I got to picture him <laughs> yeah. looking all Looney Tunes like that. But it's hard to, because it like has no effect on him. That's the thing. Like everything that happens to Thomas in this book has no a deep lasting effects on him. Getting hit by lightning, finding his mother's corpse, witnessing an eight-year-old getting killed in the swamp uh his brother making a porno with the jewish american princess like none of this has and she's described as a jewish american princess repeatedly in the book that's why i'm using this phrase um right. none of it really seems to bother thomas or really really hit him that deeply right and again bringing this character back this um murderer pedophile character one leg man coming back 20 years later it feels like, you know, if the, the demon cop from uh, the dream sequence of In the Mouth of Madness suddenly came into the <laughs> story a third of the way through and was like, oh, that guy was real. And this is 
and now this is part of the plot it's just a real that's how weird it is like that really has the feel that that flashback has the feel of like this is just a tone setting thing like this is just something to like kind of like help you understand thomas's weird psyche you know that he yeah. witnessed this and had this experience that may or may not have happened and it's like not only did it happen this guy's back for revenge now Very well the strange. book the book is full of and i believe this is true in every single case of things that are presented to be mystical supernatural horrifying ghost old time swamp religion type stuff all turn out to be real Everything yeah. turns out to be real. I, if I'm incorrect, correct me if I'm incorrect, but there's nothing supernatural in this book when you get to the end, despite every single thing in it being presented as supernatural. Well, there's the ghost it. of the dead boy throughout. I mean, there's things, you know. That- oh, yeah. He does see the ghost of the dead boy and there's the ghost blowjob scene. But those are also presented as him being like, I wake up from those dreams, aren't they? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that this weaves in and out of You're these right. kind of things. It's so kind of flowingly that you know we kind of appreciate like i think that one chapter went on for three or four pages before he was like and then i woke up i was like oh shit i didn't realize he was there i thought that was really happening Uh, that might have happened more than once but in all this kind of interesting ambiguity throughout the book my favorite character is maggie his wife you know the one he married he he married when he was eight years old who is just there doesn't she's a ghost isn't she a ghost we don't know she could be a ghost she could be a real person running around because at one point uh, on the edge of the woods watching over him. Yeah. There's this one point where uh, uh, some, one of the roadhouse girls from Ledbetter's, the local dive um, try, you know, gets pregnant and tries to, you know, uh, con him over, say he's the father and everything, even though he clearly isn't uh, freaks out when she sees the brothers and runs off. And she comes back later on being chased by two people with torches uh, that he saves her from. And he, throughout the whole book, from that point on, it's like, oh, maybe that was Drabs and Maggie chasing her. And it's just like a weird, like, wait, what? Why would you think that it was those characters? That's like, Maggie's real? Maggie's a ghost, I thought. And I guess, I guess Drabs, Drabs Bibbler does love her. My favorite resolution in this book, which is, I think, must be constitute the main plot because it's a two for one is we have the carnival geek and the dog kicker and 12 size 12 boots solved simultaneously right, right. so they go uh, he goes with uh with lottie may and her brother whose name i'm forgetting and dar the biker who does not like is his name carp is that his name Durr, right? Something like that. Dar is the guy, Dar but her brother. What's clay. Lottie May's? It's Clay. Lottie May and Clay. Lottie May and Clay and Dar, the biker who doesn't like fencing because they don't have real fear of the knives when they're fencing, who becomes buddies with uh with Thomas after they brawl, right? They also, all... I don't know if I could mixed up two characters when I was the woman who gets pregnant. Her name is Betty Lynn. I don't know if I called her Lottie May, but I, oh, very you similar. yes, you did, you All did. Right, so that was Betty Lynn. Sorry about, but that. but similar they're character. so similar that I didn't even notice. Yeah, to it, you're right. Lottie May is a granny witch in training who has been sent by the granny witches to get uh, Thomas's sweet, sweet vinegar, some of his seed, some of his sperm, so they can complete their potion to save him from. I don't know what, if they're trying to save him from the carnival, I don't think her plan of taking him out to the carnival before getting his seed is the uh, most coherent vision for granny witch protection. But so there's a carnival out in the swamp and they go out to this carnival and it's some rusty rides and, you know, the, the swamp bog folk, they're out in bog town 
getting down to carnival music with the carnies and the what is the geek from these visions that Thomas has been warned about that he's going to meet a geek he's been warned over and over right and uh, all we really know about Thomas's history is that his grandmother was murdered, his mom disappeared, and his dad, who always wanted to drain the swamp and modernize the town, right, threw himself into the factory machinery to commit suicide of the factory that was both his, his source of his power and the bane of his existence to commit suicide. He threw himself in the factory machinery. And so there are these three major sort of mysteries in, uh, in Thomas's life of what happened to his mom, you know, the, the sort of, uh, I guess it's not a mystery what happened in psychologically to his dad and who murdered his grandmother, right? And we don't know much about Thomas beyond that stuff. And they inherited this factory and he's the richest guy in town and everybody wants a piece of him. And he's been warned over and over, hey, the storm is coming. There's a carnival and you're going to meet a geek. Uh, wow, I guess we should describe also as the lead up to these plots resolving. What's the dog kicker? subplot that we've both mentioned now okay well the dog subplot they're all equal plots <laughs> yeah i guess so uh well the dog kicker my favorite thing about that is um because somebody in 12 size 12 boots is going around kicking people's beloved dogs and when i say that's funny obviously that sounds horrible but you know the thing that's funny about it is that uh nobody goes to church anymore because they're so worried about their dogs that they just stay at home and watch out for the dog kicker. <laughs> they're that worried that like he'll come around and kick their dog. And so that drives people to this kind of like hippie cult called the the flying or the holy the, order of flying Wolandas. Wolandas, which, the flying Wolandas, yeah, which, which are I, named after an a circus acrobatics troupe because they're traversing the tightrope over the abyss of their conscience. <laughs> well, I love that too, because I mean, so many religions you have like things about uh, like in Chinese tradition, they say evil spirits only walk in straight lines. And uh, like Allah would tell the, the Muslims that, you know, to be on the middle way, the straight path and not to go onto the other path. So I love the idea of like straight is the gate room. of heaven, narrow right. is the path of house salvation. Right. And then this one from Isaiah, I will go before you and make this crooked places straight. Right. I mean, the whole yeah. idea is like, you know, when you're walking religion, you're single mind, you're going across one lane and this kind of faux religious, you know, sect that is taking the flying Walendas as like their sort of mascot to kind of equate tightrope walking with like, you know, the way you're supposed to like st have a straight and narrow thought in religion, I think was really, really interesting. But anyway, so that's kind of led people to this cult and uh, they don't know who it is. <laughs> they, there, are, there are dozens of dogs who have been victimized by this guy going around and the bumpkin sheriff, you know, doesn't have any clues. Oh, the, Burke. The footprints on the dogs, the, twi the size 12 shoe footprints that have been left on these poor animals. Yes, and the, the small town sheriff is a clown who hates Thomas. He's described as all hat, no cattle, short guy, likes to throw his weight around, but can't even form coherent accusations to throw at Thomas, completely ineffectual. Everybody just wants the, the dog kicker caught this is the main thing plaguing the town more than anything else. I guess when Lucretia Martin's fatal abortion happens later on, Lucretia Martin, who's in the order of the flying windless, is found with a perforated uterus uh, in a failed abortion that didn't even work. She's she's had a, a backwoods abortion that did not work. It's Sister. an open question whether she wanted it or not. And the order of the flying Melinda's, which has started when the guy who founds it is having a breakdown in... Uh, 
Thomas is dead. There's no plot to get in the way of the story. Thomas's dad has founded a hospital in the small town. The hospital does not work out. I forget what the exact reasons are, but basically it's like, you know, yokels. Oh, it's because of the, uh, everyone has their faith in the granny witches. Like nobody wants to like trust modern medicine or anything. They're like, I'm just going to go and have the granny witch cure me. And yeah. Like the superstitions of the town are so backwards that you know no one wants to accept modern medicine basically so this guy he has a alcoholic drug-induced breakdown in the empty hospital and sees the light of salvation in that moment so thomas sells him the hospital for one dollar and they turn it into the order of the flying lalinda's monastery where you can only speak during the sixth hour and uh and they wear uh uh, vestments that have brambles and thorns inside of them. So they're always cut up inside of them. And Lucretia Martine is a former uh, loose, lascivious woman who's joined the order to get her uh, act together so she can become a mother. She's obsessed with becoming a mother. She pantomimes taking care of babies in an invisible uh, natal ward and taking care of them in the hospital, even though they're not there. Yeah, preemies um, specifically, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> yes, but just another thing to take it as far as it can. Uh, this has gotten us off of the subject of the dog kicker, which is one <laughs> of the more consistent mysteries of it. So we have Thomas on the boat with Lottie May, who wants his seed, with Carl. Just, I'll say one more thing about the dog yes. kicker. I love that the children have now adopted these pets that are legless frogs and crippled bats used by the granny witches because they're, they can't have dogs anymore because, you know, the dog will be attacked by the dog kicker. So <laughs> these are your pets. These are your alternatives. Crippled bats. So enjoy. Exactly. Also, you mentioned Thomas is an unofficial monk in the Holy Order. He break, bakes raisin bread for them yes. every once in a while. And this is something about Thomas is he's an incredible baker. The secret is to knead the dough until your hands are sore, is what he says, and yeah, lots of raisins. Bread baking sound excruciating. <laughs> but he's he's a great baker. People love his pound cake, too. The granny witch, they sort of reach a detente with the main granny witch with, uh, with Dottie Coots. God, there's so much. It's just like Dottie Coots has been sent to seduce the Siamese twin brothers so she can live in their house and watch over uh, Thomas and make sure the carnival isn't coming. And she is sent by her mother, Velma Kutz, who's cutting off fingers as part of rituals until her hands are just stumps. The detente that Thomas reaches with, reaches with Velma Kutz seems to be when she likes his pound cake enough to move in with him, to live there now. Now she lives with them. And gets Plus really into the DVDs. Um, uh, yeah, we should mention too the cover story of Dottie, you know, moving <laughs> in is that she was. Think about to this book. These are not like little. This book is all made out of this. Yeah. It's not like we're we're focusing unfairly on small details. This book is just made out of these details. But go on, John. Yeah, this is what the book consists of here. Um, that uh, Dottie has been traded to Thomas by Velma because he fixed her roof and uh, dug a few screw worms out of her cows. Yes. That's, that's the cover story, but Dodie's really there to spy on him to stop this horrible thing that we never really find out what it is from. Well, it's going to the carnival. Right. So Lottie May, who's also been sent by the granny witches to get seeds. But he although... brings up the carnival a few times to the granny witches and they always seem to be like, what? What are you talking about? 
I don't even know if the carnival is what they're supposed to uh, stop him from going. But to they tell him about the carnival. Who tells him a carnival no, no, is coming? It's one of the brothers, I think, tells. Him. Oh, the brother says Brings a carnival up. is coming. Yeah, it might be in a dream sequence, but tells him something about a carnival and. Uh, oh, and a geek. see, I didn't remember the geek. He's fighting like the are more confused about you know the prophecy than it. That makes sense. They're more worried about the storm of souls because Dottie's freaking out about the three day long rainstorm, which I guess the storm of souls is on his side though because it delivers the lightning that blows up. Johnny Johnstone, is that the name of the little boy or the- Kirby Johnstone. Johnny's the kid. Yes, blows him up. So the Stoll of Storms works in his favor. They don't need to be stopping the Soul of Storms. Well, there's that really kind of comedic moment where they're all, you know, doing doing the magic spells outside of his house and he comes out to confront them. And, you know, she says- They've broken in and they're throwing it all over his house. This is before that. This is before that. This is when they're just outside where he meets Slotty Mae for the first time. And- he comes out to confront them and they're like, you know, the storm is never going to end unless you give us your sperm. And he's like, it's letting up already. And sure enough, like it stops <laughs> raining right there. And, you know, Velma looks like quite the fool. <laughs> There's some really funny moments like that in this book. Yes, it's, it's, it, it's tone is enjoyable. But so Lottie Mae, Carl, Dar, Thomas, they're on their little fan boat that uh, not even a fan boat. They're on their like little skiff that Thomas doesn't know how to pilot because he's too pampered of a uh, big shot. So Carl has to take over and they're headed towards the carnival. And when they get to the carnival- serving up frog legs and, and such. Yes, the carnival solves two mysteries at one. It solves the dog kicker in size 12 boots and the geek. And what are the solutions? Start with the geek. What is the geek? The are a legless and one-armed geek who is you know eating like the heads off snakes and other vile things that are being thrown at him uh because like he like he isn't even blue lipped shaved covered in filth disgusting geek you'll be shocked to learn is bradley cooper from (laughs) the new (laughs) guild will tell tormund movie nightmare alley no it's his father his father is alive he survived the suicide attempt, throwing himself into the machines to be maimed. But how could he have possibly inside. survived? Who took him out in the machines and why? Uh, it was Maggie, right? My Maggie saved yes. him from the machines and took him out of the machines. And the reason she did that is because they were in love at <laughs> the little girl Maggie and she's become devoted to him. She's not married to Thomas at all. She's married to Thomas's dad. And also, he, his name is also Thomas. Yes. And so she's taking care of the geek, which leads us to who is the dog kicker? It's why it's the most natural solution in the world to this. Why, it's Maggie, of course. (laughs) Maggie has size 12 feet. (laughs) Who would have thought? No, she's wearing the dad's boots. That's why he recognized the boots as being size 12 like his dad's. It's always intimated that it's, I think it's my dad's boots kicking these dogs. And then you find out the solution that it's Maggie wearing the boots after all of these years. And every time he sees Maggie outside of the window or whatever, you know, she's at a distance, you know, she's always just kind of looking from a bush or something. And it's not until he's uh, finally wrestling around with Herbie, you know, before the lightning strikes that he sees these boots in the bushes and recognizes them as his dad's and only realizes at the carnival that it was Maggie standing around his dad's boots so this is actually you know there's actually enough lines that sort of connect together with each other that some of the other plot stuff 
makes sense once we're talking about this. We find out the solution to what happened to his missing mother, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that she knew about what was happening with Maggie and the father. And Thomas figures out, finds what happened to her. And she becomes, she starts going to lead betters and becomes another parking lot whore because she's so depressed about what her husband is doing. And uh, the husband, uh, uh the with brothers, all the employees of the mill are too chicken shit to actually get it on with her because they're worried about what Thomas would do to them. <laughs> yes. But so the conjoined triplets, right before they disappear, give uh, Thomas a key, which he realizes is to one of the steamer trunks up in the attic. And what's in the steamer trunk? Uh, it's the old uh, Rose for Emily gag, right? It's <laughs> the mother's dead corpse up in the attic, with... Uh, along with the corpse. Of one one Johnny Johnstone. Now I was really kind of the eight year old boy. Yeah, at first because I was like, wait, so the father killed the kid too? Was yeah, Herbie telling the truth that that was his son? Is that the revelation that we're going to reach here? But no, the father found Thomas passed out at the scene, and for what? What was the reason that he took the boy's corpse? He thought his son had killed the little boy. Oh, because he went. That's right. He thinks Thomas was the one who killed him. So he wants to cover it up. So he puts the corpse of the boy, the eight-year-old boy, in the trunk with his his murdered wife. Well, I think he murders his wife later. I think he's like, oh, you know what would be a good place to put my dead wife's body? In that uh, fucking steamer trunk with the dead eight-year-old boy I found with my son in the woods. I'll put him in there. And then I better go kill myself because do you hear what I just described? (laughs) And it seems like... Uh, it's implied because he mentions that there are dozens of s- similar type steamer trucks up in there, the attic of this mansion that throughout, you know, his whole family history, there could be dozens of bodies up in this attic through the years, you know, through the various uh, adventures that his family has uh, has experienced. And it's funny, he, he, it's not funny. He killed his wife because he feels like, oh, I've driven her to just be another through my terrible action, just driven her to be another commoner, another parking lot lizard for these guys. And I'm going to put her out of her mercy is the way he sees it. Um, and so that leads us to a bunch of obviously connected things that uh, don't get solved. Who did Lucretia Martin's uh, abortion, John? I don't remember. We don't know. They That's never solve right. it. <laughs> Who killed, uh, what happened to Drab's Bibbler? He's found hanging from a willow branch and who killed him? We, I assumed that, that Drab's killed him, hung himself. But we, we don't know. We don't it know doesn't say. Sure. It's implied that he's lynched. It, throughout the book, well, it's, he's he been was worrying. lynched. I mean, that does happen to Drab's at one point where he is yeah. lynched, tarred and feathered, set on fire and castrated, you know, by a bunch yeah. of, you know, fucking racist and uh, somehow survived that and is kind of just running around smiling at people <laughs> creepily. Um, and then, yeah, he shows up uh, hanging from a tree back at the mansion. And the implication is that he's hung himself for some reason. But again, who the fuck knows? <laughs> you know, he ain't telling. Okay, so then who killed grandma with a reaping hook and left her on the roof of the church? We don't know. 
No, no, the correct answer to that is stay tuned for another Thomas in Kingdom Come adventure. That one's all set up. There's all this like, and I vow to someday find out who killed my grandmother and investigate that crime and who wrote on the blackboard the mysterious messages that are similar to the messages I've seen. I'm sure in my next book, all of these questions will be answered. It really, it has a funny like, stay tuned for next for next episode with that one. And it maybe doesn't we'll find just out say, what happened to the ham as well. <laughs> the ham is in the house. John, the ham is in the house. Uh, I yeah, think we've his, bro- his brothers are still somewhere. Don't out in the woods, the brothers, they're out there somewhere. But, I, he says something to exist. We don't know. <laughs> he says something to the effect of fulfilling their destiny as being a swamp monster. He says that that's like what they're they're destined to do is to be something awful spotted in the woods that terrifies people. Mm. Um, although they're like they're portrayed as. You know, one of them is very poetic and composes sonnets for Sarah, the documentary filmmaker. And one of them is very uh, mean and angry all the time, but articulate and insightful. They they have personalities and voices. They're not just like, you know, uh, the brother in basket case. They're not just like Bilal in basket case, you know, that they're an actually, you know, articulate, interesting personalities that they have. Uh, so it is a little uh weird that he's like ah, they're meant to be swamp monsters yeah well that's the i mean everything about the brothers is just weird the handling of the brothers i mean cole sebastian and jonah they all have their own personalities and they all and they all speak through three different mouths you know sharing the same brain so you know one of them will pronounce one syllable another one will complete the thought it sounds like it's it sounds crazy the way he's kind of imagined them and even if one of them wants to say something and the other two don't want him to like he can't say it you know, it just sounds crazy. It's a very intricate kind of way that he sets up this scenario with these brothers. So the fact that they don't become a main part of the plot is really shocking because he takes so much time to like kind of establish them and makes them almost seem like the center of the whole thing when the filmmakers are there and, uh, you know, they're falling in love, falling in love with girls. And when uh, Dodie is there, it just seems like, you know, they're going to be the center of the plot. So that might be the weirdest thing about this book is that they just kind of fade away at some point and don't really <laughs> pay off i mean the implication just being that they knew all along what happened with the father and the mother and now that thomas has found out they leave i mean i, I don't know yeah it's it's very strange uh it's it's very it's very strange what do you make of the final chapter the like happy ending chapter what do you make of that <laughs> yeah strangely happy <laughs> chapter i don't know i don't know what to make out of it other than <laughs> Thomas has taken his lumps and, uh, you know, he's kind of indestructible and uh, it gets to a point where things have, you know, kind of been erased from the book or kind of like fallen by the wayside so much that, again, you're like just wondering, like, how much of this has really happened to him, you know, and how much of it, like, you know, you want to say, well, the brothers definitely existed because, he brings the girl, he brings Betty Lynn up to see them and she freaks out and the filmmakers are there and are involved with them. Like they're obviously characters who exist in the book, but at the same time, it's like, he's, you know, he walks downstairs and sees Sarah talking on the phone with her father after she's exited the narrative at one point and she warns him not to go outside. And uh, the brothers definitely exist. 
I, do I like I don't know. Yes, they're there making the documentary. There's too much that yeah, too much would have to be fake for it to exist. But right. this is what I find weird in this final chapter. But it's an all filmmaker shows up again, like as a, yeah. like a spirit or like a vision or something. Like she's obviously not really in the house at this point. She's left, gone back to New York to her parents. You know, like no, but she's but she vision. shows up at the end making the fiction film that he agrees to invest in her and uh her right. and well, at uh, the end where it's like he kind of builds this new family with all these granny witches you he know? marries maggie which he i didn't understand maggie, she officially. came back and drabs bibbler's dad does the wedding this time the reverend the esteemed reverend bibbler does the wedding but like she came back from the carnival i thought they went up state with the carnival i thought she stayed with the dad and the velma coots the the crone moves in with them and gets really into dvds she loves commentary tracks and special features. It is it is mentioned. Yeah, and, and this 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 uh, film about addiction that the guy wants to make, which just seems like you know a pipe dream or you know a half-assed idea, becomes successful and gets made. You know, it's it's wins at Sundance or something like that. Some yeah. detail like that about it. You know what I find so weird, and it's just like it's just like ah, everything's nice. This county's suddenly pretty. It's been relentlessly ugly and it just suddenly becomes everything becomes perfectly normal yeah. in the final chapter and a happy ending yeah but and there's this tone to it right between velma coots and the brothers and thomas that's it feels so much like leonard nimoy in the simpsons monorail episode like my work here is done but you didn't do anything <laughs> didn't I? Like, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't solve any mysteries. He doesn't meet any bad guys. He doesn't do anything. And the final chapter plays like, well, that was a crazy adventure I went on, but I played my role and did my part and resolved everything. It's like, but you you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything whatsoever. What is? What was your role in any of this? What was one active thing you did? He's incredibly passive in some ways like that. It's well, just make, such yeah. I mean, that's what makes the um, the Nick Steele subplot uh, so <laughs> funny because you know that, like you said, that would be like the main plot of like a crime fiction story, and he's just like, oh god, I'm not going to get involved with that. I'm not going to play that out because we all know where that's going. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> okay, I mean, that seemed like it'd be like a pretty compelling narrative for you to get involved with, but no, no, Thomas. Okay, no, we're going going somewhere else with this. You know what the biggest shock in the book is. Dar takes up fencing and is oh, quite very, good at it. Very, he's a fencing purist. <laughs> oh, Dar. Dar, we didn't even really describe who he is. So at one point, Lottie Mae, who is underage, dresses up like a little Madonna wannabe. She's wearing the lace gloves and got her hair all teased out. And she he's comes to Lever's. broken this girl because, you know, he suggested that the only way she can help out the granny witches and save the world or whatever they're trying to do is to have sex with this guy. And yeah. she's like revolted by the idea, but like she like gets herself made up and goes to the bar and just gets completely wasted, you know, completely obliterated because she doesn't want to do this. And she's just like completely broken by the idea of having to fuck this guy. And so Thomas takes her out to the parking lot. And when she's throwing up, He's approached by a biker who's like, I think you should leave the little lady alone. She looks ill and they get in a fight. That's Dar. 
and they get in a fight. And of course, Dar gets his ass kicked because Thomas is going to kick everybody's ass. He gets his face slashed with his own knife. And Dar is the best friend of Carl. Carl is Lottie Mae's brother. But that's how Dar is introduced. And he gives this monologue about fencing later on and fear of the blade. And then in the last chapter, he's taken up fencing. Can you believe it? Down there in Kingdom Come County. Kingdom. Oh, here's a question. And what's the great joke? What's the great joke that he's got involved in fencing? When they what? find that Maggie is expecting that Thomas and Maggie are going to have a child, <laughs> he buys the baby little fencing outfit. Tiny baby-sized fencing outfit. But I was going to ask, where is this book set, John? Yeah, well, I was going to bring that up. You know, um, they mentioned uh, Gainesville at one point, so it made me think it must be Florida, even though I thought Louisiana through most of it. But he, but they say a few times down in Jacksonville. I yeah. was in prison down in Jacksonville. So it's got to be north. Jacksonville's at the very north border of Florida and Georgia. So it's got to be further up. So it could but be Georgia. It, yeah. yeah. But the bayous aren't like thick. By, I mean, they have bayous for sure in Georgia, but they're not thick like that. You know, something that bothered me when um, not Lottie Mae, the one that runs out of the woods, the one who's pregnant by another man. Yeah. What's her name? Betty, Betty Sue, Betty Lynn. Baylin. Betty Lynn. So when Betty Lynn runs out of the forest, uh, out of the swamp, she's specifically coming out of the swamp. It talks about how she's got tobacco leaves stuck to her and how her mom's going to be angry because her mom hates tobacco. Uh, tobacco does not grow in swamps, John. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of this. It's uh, naturally in the wild. It's a southwestern plant. It grows in like Arizona, and New Mexico. Uh, but and they like they grow in sandy loam. They grow in like sand and sandy loam. Like they are not. <laughs> they are not growing in the swamp. This movie has an inauthenticity to it to this backwoods stuff that's why i bring that up is that like yeah. it's very deep south but then it's about tobaccos mentioned all the time and i know they grow some tobacco in georgia but tobaccos like virginia kentucky like the, that's the tobacco belt north carolina virginia kentucky and i guess they could be like in the uh okifinoki or big cypress area but it just it doesn't feel like it's written by someone from the bayou or has any familiarity with the bayou. Yeah. It feels like it's written like somebody who's only familiarity with the bayou is seeing movies about Louisiana and that area and yeah. then placing it somewhere other than Louisiana and not really getting it necessarily right. It's very, it's a relentlessly inauthentic book in that way. I don't think that's to its detriment. It makes the whole thing feel like it's taking place in a world that never existed, which creates, again, works for that uncertain what's ghosts and what's not, what's real and what's not. Tell. Absolutely. And again, the repetition, like I feel like he describes the bayou and the bottoms and the swamp the same way constantly. You know, he uses the same kind of adjectives, brings it up again, it almost feels like a film set. Like at the end, if it was like the last chapter was Fred going, okay, cut. And like, that's <laughs> like everyone like takes off their, you know, costumes or whatever it would be too out of place because that, you know, kind of artificiality of the book uh, works for, you know, kind of the weird phantasmagoria that he kind of tricks on everybody. And it's funny to think about this book compared to something like uh, Red Right Hand, where there are like all these indicators yeah. of like where it's taking place and where you are specifically, but have those kind of false indicators, like what you're talking about, you know, the same that you see in here, where it's almost like it adds to that sort of fantasy in kind of an interesting way that you're not sure you know, is the author just not familiar with the Bayou or is he, you know, doing this on purpose, like kind of making it like a little, 
just another thing to kind of throw you off balance by kind of making it a feel less authentic than it well would red right hand a red right hand is an interesting comparison because that book feels like the a disaster where the author has made an incredible mess of things right <laughs> it feels like the author has just it's just made every wrong decision somehow every erratic bizarre decision they can make this feels like the opposite this feels like the the writer is very much um uh doing it all on purpose whatever mm -hmm. they're doing it feels like they're doing it on purpose you know it does not feel like wow what what could they possibly have been thinking with red right hand which is a real master genuinely bizarre book a real masterpiece of just the psychological landscape has gotten so screwed up and turned around it's lost its its narrative and descriptive compass that you're just wandering miles in the wrong direction <laughs> like when it's like no man the story's back over here you keep walking <laughs> You're headed the wrong way. This feels like it sees where the story is and intentionally walks away from it further and further. And you're like, why are we going away from the story? And it's like, mm, I don't know. You're like, guy, I'm going to follow you. And it's like, eh, we'll see when we get there. And you're like, you're fucking with me. Like you're yeah. definitely fucking with me. And you're taking me someplace bizarre. And I'm feeling more and more unsafe the further you're walking me away from where my compass is telling me we should go. My compass as a reader is telling me we should go you know well, yeah, it feels like being guided that way perfectly possesses thomas you know in a way that you know like you said the the voice created for this book works perfectly because and probably isn't you know his regular author voice that you would find in some of his other works i'd be curious to find out but uh that he's created like such a weird but control like a very like confident and controlling kind of narrative voice through thomas in this book that just like kind of even though you don't really understand why he doesn't get involved in more things or like why, you know, he reacts to things the way he does. It makes it more interesting because this is like a character who maybe could be making this shit up from the beginning to the end, which of course he is, you know, it's a fucking work of fiction. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what I mentioned earlier, which is the gentrification of exploitation genres, okay. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, what I mean by that is in the last, I would say it's been like 20 years or so, uh, maybe 25 years, exploitation genres like horror, pornography, crime stuff, black exploitation, right? Um, any of the genres that we think of as being exploitation genres have become um, not dangerous. They become not transgressive. They become inoffensive. There's been a sort of like academic colonization of this work where- they become Thai West X is what they become. <laughs> well, but also they've just become like, this is a safe space for outsiders, right? Yeah. And if you're an outsider, this is a safe space to exist in, as opposed to uh, a lot and the new stuff being produced particularly exists in this area. There's a certain kind of person who's like, I love exploitation cinema, who are just these fucking dork losers who would have pissed their pants to set foot in Times Square in the 70s, right? These just like, hello, fellow sleazoids, who are like guys who would be really freaked 
the fuck out by seeing someone pass out on heroin, you know, with the needle still in their arm. You know, this just kind of very non like you know welcome to our our podcast on the sleaziest cinema in the world you know and just just these this kind of like dork loser that is like uh condescending to the genre sometimes you know i think about um there's something weird when like what what is sweet sweet back if it is a beloved film that all white people agree is an important artwork, right? And that a film that should be respected, that's not the function it was intended to fill. It's intended to be terrifying and upsetting. It's intended to be transgressive. And if you put it in this cultural museum inside a display case and you're like, no, this is an expression of black political thought that's actually like completely acceptable within the confines of this and blah, 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 and wave off all of the problematic, you know, sexual assault elements and deep hatred of white people elements, which is justified and what makes it interesting. It's an expression of an upset psyche in an upsetting time, right? Hmm. If you take away all this transgressive stuff and you gentrify it, if you make this the safe, cool neighborhood to live in, you're destroying what's valuable about this stuff. You know, you really are, you know, to be like, you know, horror cinema is queer friendly. It's like, read an interview with Joe D'Amato and come back and tell me if that's true. Read an interview with Lucio Fulci. Like that's not, there's unquestionably aspects of it that can be that, right? Because, uh, you know, especially with the, the queer sexuality stuff, when that was like transgressive outsider shit at a time that was in these films in some way. Now that that stuff's not, uh, transgressive outsider stuff anymore now that that's very mainstream fortunately yes good great this is a victory we should all celebrate although a tenuous victory that's always under assault um it's it makes it just gentrified it takes something essential away from it and i think that in the last 20 years you have this kind of funny thing that happens in the 90s that i noticed which is like there's a pause on exploitation cinema. Have you ever noticed this? Like in the era when the drive-ins die, right? And VHS pornography becomes accessible to a lot of people. So you don't need grindhouse theaters. You don't need porno theaters, right? This is simultaneously the era in which um, the PG-13 horror film reigns, right? Mm. This is when you get the invention of the PG-13, the much derided PG-13 horror film in the in the mid to late 90s. And there's this sort of weird pause put on, what do we do with horror? You know, vivid video, sort of like tasteful pornography with contract stars who are treated in a respectful way, as opposed to, you know, like human hiss buckets getting their heroin money. You know what I mean? Like, like, uh, like it's, it becomes something completely, there's like this pause period. And then when it's restarted, you have this entire generation of people who have been educated on exploitation cinema by like sort of the Tarantino mindset, which is very toothless and apolitical and sort of, um, a bit condescending to it. And sort of like, it's the safe space uh, exploitation stuff. And I don't mean that in the sense of like wokeness or connecting it to cancel culture or anything. I mean, literally this stuff is, is safe. Now this stuff is not transgressive. This stuff is not offensive. This stuff is, is 
disturbing within very narrow parameters of who it's meant to disturb is rarely the audience anymore. It's sort of like this would be disturbing if the kind of person who would never watch this movie watched this movie, right? As opposed to old horror stuff, uh, old exploitation cinema used to be disturbing to everybody. It was erratic. It was products of diseased minds. It was made by people that you suspect of the most awful and puerile motivations. It was gross. It was funny. It was inappropriate. It had no sense of good taste or boundaries. Uh, just to, somebody like Jama Fanaka, what, they would not exist in the modern day. He would not be able to do it. And so when I run into this gentrification, it feels like a very real thing that happened. This book is so shocking to read, written in 2003, because it hasn't been gentrified. This book is a genuine bad neighborhood of a book. It is genuinely in poor taste. It's not self-consciously in poor taste. You know, it's not cutesy poor taste. It's not cutesy camp, right? It's not, and I think that, you know, I said Tarantino, John Waters also ends up being responsible for this in a bit of way is sort of like the fun of camp and the fun of filth and sort of making like <laughs> finding a way to bridge that world of hairspray. You know what I mean? Finding a way to make something that that was theoretically transgressive into family friendly fun is sort of the story of his career. He's a mainstream figure. He's in Lonely Island videos. You know what I mean? He's he's somebody who has Broadway shows. And I think that that's been sort of a signal of what's happened with exploitation in general. And this book is not this book is not impossible to to justify. It's full of pedophilia. <laughs> it's full of leering descriptions of women's bodies. It's full of cheap, titillating sex. It's full of grotesque violence. It's full of lingering on things that make us uncomfortable, deformed people, you know, grotesque people, dumb people. Uh, it's just, it's full of Oh, it's the bad, it's a bad neighborhood. It's a block that I was like, oh shit, I'm on a bad block. You know, there's a porno theater on this block. I, I haven't seen one of those in a long fucking time, you know? And, and especially when everything around it is gentrified in the horror genre. Horror, horror is easily, I would say, the most gentrified of all of the exploitation genres as it's sort of been taken over and made very toothless and harmless in a lot of ways. Oh, without a doubt. And hidden behind this generic cover. <laughs> <laughs> Do you agree with what I'm saying? Do you think it's fair? Do you have quibbles yeah. with it? No, no, no. I, I, I agree that there's a welcome, you know, there's, welcome, there's fellow sleazy maniacs, to the most gross horror film of all time. But no, is it, it is interesting that you bring up the '90s specifically, though, as being kind of like the timeout period of like horror movies that really, you know, were gut punches, you know, and weren't just sort of like blockbuster video, you know, staples. Because I, at the beginning of the 90s, you have Tales from the Crypt, which is something I kept thinking yeah. about reading this as well. Tales from the Crypt was funny because it ha it completely embraces uh, the EC Comics ethos of the 50s and 60s of being completely wrong, completely on PC, and yeah. completely disgusting and gory and just loving it. Like, like every single panel of it. I don't want to frame just... any of this in terms of political correctness. I do just want to jump in and say, that's not what I'm, I'm talking about when I say uh, PC. I really don't yeah. think it's like a left-right thing I'm talking about at all. It's really sure. not like, 
I wish this stuff, you know, that the PC police weren't here. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Um, uh, That's not really not what I mean with any of this. Sure. But I mean, Tales from the Crypt still in the EC comics, you know. Yeah. Debauched, you know, (laughs) like gleefully debauched. Tough to tough to justify your enjoyment of. Yeah. Because it's because of what it focuses on. You know, exactly. Like, you, like, you know, when I got a, a, a beautiful book on like, you know, the history of EC comics recently and was showing some of the covers to Jordy and she was, you know, just completely disgusted by them. I was like, but this is beautiful. You got to admit, this is beautiful. Look at this cover. Um, and then it gets packaged kind of miraculously by HBO with like celebrity endorsements, you know, like all of Hollywood jumps on the boat on this, you know, yeah. Goldberg, Demi Moore, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's more or less like the, the planet Hollywood of like, you know, horror yeah. shows but that it was did not flinch for one minute from being like the kind of it, depicting the kind of like transgressive crazy weirdness of those comic books yeah but those comics were also always as gross as they are they're like fun kids stuff this is something i talk about when uh with my own son who who's 12 and has always been a horror movie fan is that i will show him horror movies that are intended to be fun not Even horror movies too. that are intended to be upsetting Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think that is a distinction within within the horror genre is that some of them are intended to be a good time at the movies and some of them are intended to disturb you. I'm not saying everything has to be intended to disturb you in that way. You're not going to give this book to Parker to read. Yeah, but not to be legitimate. It doesn't have to be disturbing. You can make a perfectly non-transgressive horror movie that's that's good and enjoyable on its own merits family friendly pg horror movies i love shit like that you know that's not necessarily what i'm talking about i'm just talking about gentrifying making the entire movie you know making every shop in Times square the disney store you know what i mean like disney store has got its place i'm not somebody that's going to argue that you know the sex shop is better than the disney store it's just when the entire neighborhood becomes that it's a different feel and a different a different flavor you know in some way Mm -hmm. and i'm not somebody who romanticizes uh, certainly the badness of the world either. You know, I'm not somebody who romanticizes New York was so much better when you could get stabbed there. You know what I mean? Like, I like how safe my city is. I really enjoy that about this city. And I don't, and I certainly don't miss, you know, streetwalkers out by the seven train, you know, like I don't, I don't miss that kind of thing, you know? Um, but so it's just, it is one of those things where it's shocking to read this because it just doesn't happen in the modern era because a lot of modern era's conception of what's over the top are really going to shock people is just laying on like the gore and the effects and stuff like that. You know, it's uh, ultra ways of killing people, which I think is ultimately some of the less shocking stuff that you can have in horror movies. You know, and I think that's something there are stuff that are perfect, that are horror movie series that I love, like Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th that are not transgressive in any way, that are perfectly mainstream, fun entertainments. You know, I don't think it's I think you'd have to be crazy to argue that these are not legitimate films in that way. I just think that there's there's something that's happened to it where it's been made into something safe, you know, and something harmless and something toothless where like. Uh, intellectuals live now, you know, and academics live and, and sort of average suburban folks, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree. I mean, I have not read 
enough modern horror over the last 20 years to like really have an opinion on like oh well well you know what what are there other writers who are you know kind of you know giving us you know the kind of great transgressive arc that we kind of loved from you know back in the day i don't know if this is you know uh really a complete outlier in terms of outlier in terms of that um so i don't really have much of a reference but i you know definitely agree with you that you know this is definitely not something that is gentrified in any way yeah well it's also interesting i think to just analyze the gentrification with the internet and again why i keep bringing up pornography the pornography is super easy to get and and make and so the sexual desire linked to exploitation genres no longer has a need or a place in it. It used to be in there when you're a kid and you put on a horror movie, part of what you're excited about is you're going to get to see boobies, right? Well, you can see boobies anywhere now. John, I'm sorry to break it to you. I can see in your eyes total shock and horror at this. But I think when you you can make any kind of pornography you want and pornography is readily accessible, it takes one of the transgressive elements away from it to a point where this is a common thing you see on social media all the time of why do there even need to be sex scenes in movies? And it's and it's <laughs> something people don't want to admit, but yeah, the sex of it, the titillation of it, the getting off of it was part of the role that these films provided. That's why somebody like Joe D'Amato and Wes Craven and Lloyd Kaufman all also made actual pornography. <laughs> you know, they directed literal hardcore porno too on top of doing their horror stuff, right? And many more directors sort of vacillate between those two worlds. Gregory Dark. Um, and, and I think that the access to pornography changes the equation. I also think the ability to get anything in the world and distribution that any movie can be found on the internet, um, there's no longer the MPAA and sort of the concerns of theatrical distribution, putting limiters on anything. So if you want to make a movie in which somebody cuts off somebody's head and shits down their throat, literal shit, you can do that. And people will be able to see your movie. You know, that's, that's why you have sort of the, the, the late VHS era, sort of the, those notorious hardcores like the August underground series, right. That sort of have no limiter on anything because there's new distribution channels emerging in that era, uh, although those are still tapes, so that's probably not the, the best example. But that kind of thing now, if you want to see something incredibly fucked up, you can see actual execution footage any day of the week if you want to. I was talking about Martin Kessler with this. On the internet, you will accidentally see the most fucked up shit in the world if you want to. So sort of that function of horror films too, that sort of like the role that Faces of Death is playing, that Cannibal Holocaust is playing, right? That doesn't exist anymore. That's not necessary. Sort of internet has changed the equation in that way. And that's also, I think, it's not just a matter of audiences becoming safe or some kind of um, uh, PC sensibility affecting it. I just think these are other factors in the gentrification you know i think that 
all of this stuff is sort of coming together and sort of like the academic interest after men, women and chainsaws that sort of opens the door for it's okay to like these movies too. I think that's a big part of it. I think it's this confluence of factors, the sort of, uh, you know, John Waters Tarantinoification of exploitation cinema, the academic interest in it, the lack of limiters because of, uh, because of uh, the internet access to pornography and sort of change audience tastes where audiences now I think uh, you know don't necessarily uh, react to transgression in the same way that when an artwork is actually made for weirdo perverts that's upsetting people get upset by it the same people who think of having ownership over these genres get upset by that do you think ratings matter anymore ratings absolutely do not matter there's no way for them to matter the last place in which ratings matter is Disney plus. And now that Disney plus is adding R rated movies, it, it literally doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that in particular, that's why like the death of NC 17 and unrated editions, like you will always see the most full on hardcore directors cut of everything. There's also been graphicness drift. That's very well documented between what would get you an R rating in 1988 and what will get you an R rating in 2020. It's just, so much more graphic like you know just it's films are so much more graphic now than they used to be i I think all of this is graphic with being less transgressive with being less indigestible being less unpalatable you know i i and this book is fucking indigestible and unpalatable nice segue (laughs) yeah it's great uh so any any last thoughts on the choir village philippine you i feel like i've spoken enough on it i kept waiting for you to interrupt my monologue i'm sitting here literally staring at your mouth i was transfixed waiting for you to chime in um well do our dessert pairings thought about it as much as you have but um (laughs) no it's great so yeah let's do some dessert pairings here uh i will do i feel like i've picked this for a dessert pairing before but I am picking a piece of legitimate literature. Tony Morrison's Beloved you is what I'm for. Um, <laughs> the episode for... we had Crawford on. The uh... oh, I picked it. I can't do that. But this is so fucking similar yeah. because funny. you have I, I, I with Eva yeah. emerges from the swamp as this kind of overtly sexualized mute creature of a woman who's associated with magic and havoc. Right. That's the plot of Beloved. That's who Beloved is in that book. This mute hyper-sexualized girl creature that emerges from the wood and wreaks havoc on everyone around her and she has supernatural associations, right? And I think that also one of the things I like about Beloved, Beloved's genuinely transgressive. Beloved is full a lot of unpalatable, indigestible stuff. The way a lot of great literature is, is it's, it's a book that's unabashedly gross and humid at times you know it's a book that's unabashedly overheated and perverted and perverse and full of sexual depravity you know mm-hmm. in the same way this book is i can't believe i picked i let me think of something else to pick so i'm not no picking i mean beloved right. twice. I, I thought of beloved reading this book and you know might have had something to do with you bringing it up when we we're talking <laughs> about john ferris but no I, I i definitely got a lot of that i got a lot of the uh kind of the characters, you know, reliance on old uh, backwoods magic and things like that and superstition 
being kind of interestingly tied to sexuality and and and, and death you know that, that makes me think of the morrison book a lot yeah i'm going to switch this will be my dessert pairing this will be my dessert pairing. So I have a different official one, although it's a crappy pairing and it's not that great of a movie, but I thought of it. Red Lights from 2012 with Killian Murphy and Robert De Niro. And that book is about, um, it's directed by Rodrigo Cortez. It's about a pair of psychic investigators going around and debunking psychics. They have their sights set on debunking Robert De Niro as a big time psychic and proving that he's a fraud, right? And at the end of the book, Killian Murphy has proved to be such a good debunker because he's actually psychic and psychic phenomenon actually exists. Oh my God. It's the complete inverse of this book, which this book is so steeped in ritual and supernatural and magic. And by the end, it's all disproven. None of it is real. It's a book that lives and breathes it. And the sort of twist of it is, is that all these things that you think are ghosts and supernatural storms and visions coming, it all proves to be, you know, real stuff. The dog kicker isn't a phantom. The dog kicker is a lady in her, his dad's boots. You know what I mean? The mom didn't disappear into the ether. <laughs> into the ether. No, she's a real person. They get married at the end. Uh, I, think, I think you're meant to understand all of this to be real. I think this is the trick they're playing. And, you know, red lights is the inverse of that, the frustrating inverse of being on the side of the debunkers, the whole movie in the end being like psych psychic phenomenon is real. Got you. You know, it's the exact inverse in that way. But the movie's not too good. Uh, I, I hate psychics so much in real life even pet psychics. I think it's such a bullshit and such a scam that the movie really aggravated me because psychic stuff is always real in the movies. The psychics always turn out to be true and the debunkers are always the clowns. And this movie, the, the debunkers, people who don't believe are always the people who are going to get their supernatural comeuppance. This is the, the, the cliche, this is the stereotype of paranormal genres, right? The person who's not a believer is going to get their comeuppance in a big way, right? They're always pompous, they're always liars, uh, or not liars, they're always idiots, they're, they're fools who are going to get it. With this movie, it's very much like, no, the people doing the debunking are the good people on the side of truth who don't want the hurt and the weak and the people in bad places in their lives being financially exploited and taken care of by psychics who prey on weakness and vulnerability as a matter of their profession. They're parasitic and exploitative as a profession and let's go through and debunk them, right? And so then when the psychic stuff turns out to be real, it just really fucking got me. It just really made me like, like I was on your side movie. I thought you were different movie. I thought you were different than the other, but you're just the same. You're just like all the others. <laughs> but it's an interesting film. So again, I'm, I'm really happy that Stephanie Crawford brought this book to our attention. You know, she had mentioned that she has a real emotional connection to this book. She's read it a few times and it really is an emotional ride, this book. And I'm really glad that, you know, to have been exposed to it and really want to see, start reading some of his other stuff. I was really bummed to find out that he passed away just a few years ago at the age of 50. I didn't know that. Yeah. He had cancer and passed away in 2015, which is a huge bummer, but you know, has written several books. And so I thought it would only be, you know, appropriate to 
uh, read some of his short stories and uh, present that as the dessert pairing. And the one that I'm going to suggest, it's funny because we've you know spent a little time saying how ridiculous it is to compare this book to Flannery O'Connor just by, <laughs> you know, virtue of the fact that they are both set in the South. I can't, I really cannot see another connection beyond that. Um, because this, the title of the short story, this Bram Stoker award-winning story is The Misfit Child Grows Fat on Despair, which sounds a lot more like, like <laughs> that the is ultimate a Flannery, Flannery yeah. O'Connor title. Although the, the story Probably itself, just because of The Misfit in it, right? Isn't well, that probably what conjures it up? Despair, everything yeah. just kind of puts it in there. But it's, of course, The Misfit mainly. But um, it's not the story is not particularly Flannery O'Connor-esque, although it's more so than this book. It's more like... Uh, uh, Tobias Wolf's Bullet in the Brain that were written by George Saunders because it's oh, set wow. during a, a, blank, a bank robbery. And I don't want to say too much about it because you should go out and read it because it's crazy. But I will just say it is about a guy who eats souls, basically. That's huh. what it's about. <laughs> and it's pretty fucking nuts. And um, like I said, it's an award-winning story. So it's out there. It's on the internet. Um, definitely go and check it out and it would definitely be a great one especially if you like this book uh, this is the story to follow it up with 100 yeah that's interesting i will definitely definitely 1000 percent do it i'm going to read it he's an interesting author you know like you i haven't read a bunch of i'm not a big horror writer not a big horror reader i don't read a lot in the horror genre i'm a big horror movie fan but i don't read a lot in the genre i'm a crime reader you know, I feel like those are the two. You either read a lot of crime paperbacks or you read a lot of horror paperbacks or you read a lot of romance paperbacks. Yeah, you know, you like have your concentration. Books too. So. But it's he's very interesting, man. He's very interesting. And sure. I know a lot of horror writers are going to be in, in the shadow of Stephen King too. You know, I think we didn't talk much about Stephen King. This feels influenced by Stephen King, but taken further. You know, it, it feels like you know, it just, it has everything that comes after King in the genre feels like they're trying to get away from him or respond to him in some way. And I definitely feel a, a measure of that in this. Well, it's definitely, definitely steeped more in the Gothic than anything Stephen King has ever written. I think that, for sure, you know, King at the end of the day, I mean, I, you know, really like King. But, you know, I feel like he's got to have like his comfort stuff in his books. Like he's got to have a yeah. character at some point sitting in the 7-Eleven, you know, drinking a Slurpee. You know, he's got to have those things that really ground it with like the world, the America that he knows and that we all kind yeah. of feel comfortable with. And I feel like there are no such, you know, safety blocks at all in this book. Yeah, you know, you're completely in kingdom come yeah, the entire time. You are. You're totally in the swamp, in the carnival, in the bottoms, you know so yeah stephanie is great i'm really glad she recommended this uh she's really fun to talk to she did say uh if we read it and don't like it what we should do at the end is have her come on for 20 minutes while we yell at her and i i thought that would have been i was like we should just tell her we didn't like it so we can have her on for 20 minutes to talk to her about it uh just pretend that we ate it that would have been fun we should have done that <laughs> we, 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 there's still time to do it in this episode now call her up tomorrow pretend to have not liked it but really prank her will completely prank stephanie crawford john uh anything uh else that you want to say about the book before we end this lovely episode no no i think we covered it 
we need our sign off. Uh, please, if you do not, uh, we recommend that you uh, donate to our Patreon. Follow us on Patreon for $2 a month. You get early access to every episode that comes out and a special monthly bonus. Could be podcasts, commentary tracks, short films. It can be any number of things. The reason we have a Patreon is so we can pay our writers like Stephanie Crawford to write for us. We can pay people to write for the site and pay them commensurate with their talents rather than skimming them 50 bucks for 2000 words. Um, and that's really the reason to do it. We love all the support we've always gotten for the Patreon. It allows us to do the site, but we do the Patreon. We do this podcast exclusively to promote the Patreon and draw people to it. Uh, John and I never intended to be podcasters. So donate to the Patreon. And if you are a supporter already, we really cannot thank you enough. Have a good night, everybody. I do consider myself a codcaster. Use cod from my bait to get the bigger fish. <laughs> cod, cod pastor. <laughs> you know, like Drab's like, Bibbler's dad. He's a cod pastor. Go out and preach. Into, you're preaching to the fish here, John. <laughs> oh.